1: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
0: On this episode, an author researcher investigates the possible connection between neurological and autoimmune disorders exhibited by crooked smiles and misaligned eyes and metals in our medicine.
2: As far as confidence about my hypotheses, I'll say this. I hope I'm wrong because if I'm right, It's a terrible, terrible thing that we as humans are going to have to face and own up to if I'm right. This podcast
0: is brought to you by Paranormal Contractors. You'd be shocked to know how many people are experiencing some kind of paranormal activity in their home or business. It's not something that's discussed in public for fear of ridicule, but it is happening. But it is happening. And maybe it's happening to you or someone you love. Make no mistake, this is a serious matter and my good friends at Paranormal Contractors treat it with the seriousness it deserves. Paranormal Contractors is a division of crime and trauma scene cleaners. They'll come to your home with the latest and the best technology to investigate, authenticate, and remediate your ghost or demon problem. Why not put your mind at rest and take that first step? Call them right now at 1-866-724-0800. 1-866-724-0800 or email them at paranormalcontractors at gmail.com. Tell them Richard sent you. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night.
1: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres.
0: Welcome to your Monday. Now, before I get started, I want to say hello to a faithful listener who sent this very kind email. She writes, my name is Sarah and I live in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm a mother to a very active toddler who loves to run. As I'm clocking countless hours and miles chasing after her, I have one earbud in listening to Conspiracy Unlimited or the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. The range of topics and viewpoints keeps me interested, but your research, knowledge, and interview style make me informed. I listen to an episode every chance I get and look forward to hearing many more. Thanks so much, Sarah. I'm always delighted to hear from listeners, and I especially enjoy learning about how, when, and where you listen to this podcast. Now, Sarah mentioned she's the mother of a toddler. How many of you have noticed that so many babies these days appear to have lopsided smiles or crooked smiles? And not just babies, teens, adults. And why are so many people's eyes misaligned? Well, What started as a simple research to understand this phenomenon turned into a two-year quest that uncovered hidden links between our crooked faces and some of the most puzzling diseases of our time. From autism to Alzheimer's and from chronic fatigue syndrome to Crohn's disease, my guest's book, Crooked, Man-Made Diseases Explained, methodically goes through the most recent scientific research and connects the dots from the outbreak of metallic medicine in 1800s England to the eruption of neurological and autoimmune disorders so many are suffering from today. If the theories put forth in this book are true, the convergence of metals, microbes, and medicine that started 200 years ago may have set humanity on a path of suffering that could make the deadliest epidemics in history pale in comparison. Thankfully, for the millions who are afflicted, who may have found nothing to explain the cause of their suffering, these same theories could also illuminate the path to healing and recovery. Forrest Moretti was born in Wilmington, North Carolina, and grew up around a large film studio and the many movies and TV shows that filmed there. After receiving religion and music degrees from Wake Forest University, Forrest plied his trade in the film and television industry for 13 years, working as an editor, audio engineer, visual effects artist, or composer on two Muppet movies, Dawson's Creek, Varsity Blues, and a creative technologist, and many other productions. He spent another 10 years working as a creative technologist in the advertising and mobile app space as a programmer, designer, and consultant he maintains a popular Facebook and YouTube series called My Incredible Opinion, where he opines on the hubris of human beings. In addition to Crooked, he's written several other controversial books about vaccines, including The Moth in the Iron Lung, a biography of polio, Unvaccinated, why growing numbers of parents are choosing natural immunity for their children, and his latest coming out on May 1st, The Autism Vaccine. Forrest Moretti, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you?
2: Hey, Richard. I'm great. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Pleasure to be here.
0: Crooked, Man-Made Diseases Explained. This is an interesting uh, project for you. I mean, your your background is film and television, technology. Just briefly describe what led you into this fascinating research.
2: Yeah, um, I'm a curious guy, like a lot of people. Uh, if my liberal arts education gave me anything, it was a thirst for knowledge. And um, as I've come up in age, I've started doing some medical research, uh, partly an attempt to understand some issues that uh, people in my family were dealing with, and partly um, just out of curiosity. And um, About a year or two ago, as I uh, went deeper and deeper into this research, I started seeing some patterns um, that were both curious and alarming. And uh, it was a sequence of dominoes that began to fall um, at the end of 2017 when I first started writing the book. There was about a three-month period where uh, probably about four or five separate Um, epiphanies, if you can call it that, came together and sort of unlocked uh, what may be the answer to a bunch of riddles about some of these strange illnesses and diseases um, that we suffer from. So I'm not getting into the topic itself. I'm just sort of explaining the backstory. Right.
0: I've been following you on Twitter and You put yourself out there, and people, some of them not too kind on Twitter, you are absolutely undaunted by these ad hominem attacks. You must be really confident in your findings and in your theory.
2: (laughs) Uh, That's partly it. Um, You don't grow up with a name like Forrest without getting teased as a child. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, all throughout my childhood, I I was constantly um, teased for my name. Um, I was always the chubby kid in class teased for that. Um, so, you know, the adversity definitely helped. Um, as far as confidence about my hypotheses, I- I'll say this, I hope I'm wrong because if I'm right, um, it- it's a terrible, terrible thing, uh, that we as humans are going to have to face and own up to if I'm right. But, um, I'm fairly confident that my hypotheses are close. Now I'm sure there's something in there I've gotten wrong. I'm sure there's something right now that I'm confident about that is completely wrong. But I'm willing to find that, and I'll be the first person to admit it when I find it. Um, I'm, I'm out there, as you say, because I'm trying to stir up controversy and debate about these questions. Currently, people think there is a consensus on these issues, and when there's a consensus, study is not done. Research is not done. So if people can argue and fight over this, then it will get the funding it needs, then the research will be done. Then I can be proven correct or wrong, and I can go back to my hobbit hole and write (laughs) about something else.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about what you noticed about uh, photographs and tilted smiles and misaligned eyes.
2: Yeah, this is um, something that's actually been around for quite a while. This is not something I came up with. This is not something anyone's come up with recently in the last 20 years. But um, basically, in uh, your nervous system is a component of your brain called the brainstem. The stem is the most crucial component of neurological function. You know, you can you can sustain all kinds of injuries to your brain itself. You know, you've seen x-rays of people with javelins. You know, they were at a track and field event. <laughs> yes. A javelin took them out. And these people will come around. I mean, they might wake up speaking German perfectly before <laughs> they didn't know how to speak it. But sometimes uh, people can sustain incredible um, cerebral assault with no injury. This brainstem itself is different. This is where executions happen. This is what is supposed to be sheared uh, when someone is hung or a shot. They, They go for the brainstem because there's no redundancy here. The tiniest little bit of damage here is immediately visible in all kinds of ways. And the most curious way it's visible is on your face. And what happens is some of the brainstem innervates these uh, muscles through things that are called cranial nerves. They emanate out of the brainstem, and they um, innervate the muscles that allow you to smile. They innervate the muscles that allow you to move your eyes from side to side. Um, They innervate the muscles that allow your eyes to remain in alignment. Now, there's many other cranial nerves we can talk about in a minute, but just for now, know that any injury to the brainstem is likely to cause problems with these muscles that allow you to smile or frown or keep your eyes looking straight ahead. So when an injury happens to the brainstem, you can see it on someone's face. And it's most commonly apparent through two things. One is called strabismus, which is where their eyes don't quite line up correctly. And the other is just a crooked smile, like you might associate with Bell's palsy. Now a lot of times it's not that severe But when someone smiles, once you learn to spot it, you can see it. One side of their face doesn't move the way the other does.
0: Right, My listeners here in Canada, Forrest, will be very familiar with a very high-profile figure uh, in Canada, Prime Minister Jean Cachin from uh, Quebec, who was uh, a liberal prime minister uh, in the 1990s and uh, was – he had suffered from Bell's palsy as, as a child. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, he had definitely had a very pronounced, uh, well, one side of his face basically was kind of somewhat contorted. And when he talked, in fact, he was made fun of. Other politicians, ah, here we go. Another p- politician talking out of both sides of his face is what they used to say. Right. Uh, but it was Bell's palsy.
2: Yeah, and and they don't know why uh, Bell's palsy happens, they, they think they have some answers, but they don't actually know. And it's been around uh, a long time, right? Yeah, actually, uh, first described by Charles Bell in the uh, early 1800s. He's an incredible neurologist. I mean, he was figuring out things, you know, decades before anyone else understood them. And they ended up naming this particular palsy after him because he studied facial palsy thoroughly. Um, I'm looking at the prime minister you just described, and he has um, a very common cranial nerve palsy, which I call the droop. Yes. And there are people like Dick Cheney has it. Katie Couric has it. Uh, Alicia Silverstone has it. Lester Holt, who's a, a an anchor on NBC News here in, in the States, has it. Um, there are a lot of people that have this palsy. And... Um, the, the more common one is visible when people smile and you'll see what's called a nasal labial fold. It's that little line that runs from the corner of your nose down toward your jaw. And when you smile, it, you'll see it on one side of someone's face and then you won't see it on the other. Now, interestingly – uh, you know, most people will say, well, this is just natural asymmetry. You know, no one's perfectly symmetrical. Of course not. No one's perfectly symmetrical. It's, it's very rare. But when someone, when their eye on that side of their face also deviates outward or inward on the same side of their face that's exhibiting palsy, you start to know, okay, this isn't natural asymmetry. Something actually happened within the brainstem for both their mouth and their eye to be damaged on that same side, and, and once again, once you learn to recognize it, you'll spot it right away.
0: And and you you, and you have a, a wonderful uh, video on on your website. Are you crooked? Is it crooked dot com?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, you you go through all of these photographs. Of, well, let's start with with photographs from sort of the earliest days of photography. Because it wasn't always thus is the point you were making.
2: Yeah, in the predominance we see it now. uh, Ever since photography has existed, the earliest daguerreotypes, um, we have been using metal as medicine. And, you know, at the heart of a lot of what I talk about in research is metallic medicines. And this doesn't mean like literally metals, but metallic substances, mercury, mercury. Aluminum being the two most common. But if you go back and look at these early pictures, you will be amazed how difficult it is to find someone with an uh, asymmetrical face. I mean, it's really uncanny. And on my website, I've got uh, some samples on there. And if your listeners want to do a quick test themselves, just Google Civil War soldier Portrait. And just start flipping through and find out how long it takes you to find someone with a – now, they're not going to be smiling, so you're going to have to look for their eyes um, out of alignment. But it's amazing how many photos you'll have to cycle through before you find someone with um, strabismus, with their eyes not pointed in the same direction.
0: Right. I mean, that's symmetry of the human face. And people say, you know, it's – uh it incorporates you know the golden ratio, and that symmetry has sort of been held up as the paragon of what is beautiful
2: yeah it's it's interesting that we've actually perverted that in that many pictures, if you look online and do a Google search for baby crooked smile you 'll often find the mother saying it's cute she'll say, Look at their cute, crooked smile yes. And it's, the reason is it's thought of as a smirk. It's thought of as a, a quaint human emotion. And certainly there are people who smirk. But like I said, once you start looking through it, it becomes really easy to determine what's a smirk and what's not. When, and when you have a six-month-old baby who wasn't smirking uh, yesterday and is suddenly incapable of smiling evenly today – and there was a significant medical event that happened in between those two things, it starts to make you wonder. Hi there. I want to tell you about a
0: podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve Deshabi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the Dead Files, and what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love Tales of the Paranormal, but if you want more... In the second season of Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, this time traveling the streets of Manteca, California, to uncover who really murdered 18-year-old Rene Ramos. On June the 5th, 2000, Ramos's body was found buried under a pile of debris inside the shell of a new Home Depot building. Despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, tips that were ignored until now, Renee's boyfriend, 18-year-old skateboarder Jake Silva, and Ty Lopez, the 33-year-old uncle of one of Jake's close friends, were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover cover long overlooked evidence about what really happened to renee by listening to proof murder at the warehouse wherever you get your podcasts when did you notice when you look historically back through photographs and then you then you flip forward decade upon decade when did you start to see the change in the smile in the alignment or the misalignment of the eyes
2: well, initially, it's funny. I used to work in the film industry uh, for a long time. I, I worked on Four Seasons of Dawson's Creek, which is a really popular TV show here in the U.S. I'm not sure if you guys got it up there. Oh, yes. Okay. Um, so I spent four years on that show working really closely with every all the stars. And um, I was going through uh, Hollywood photos because everyone's smiling in these photos. And you really don't see it very often until the Dawson's Creek kids. And then the next thing is, if you look at the Harry Potter kids, it's everywhere. Now, the reality is, and and I've got a book where I explore this a little further, the autism vaccine, which is coming out on May 1st. I know when it started to happen, like officially, in my opinion, when it started to happen, which was in 1932. But you really don't see the prevalence that you see nowadays until you look at kids that were born in the late seventies and early eighties. And that's when it it feels like it starts to become almost common.
0: And if you had to put a number on it or a percentage of, well, people that were born in the the late seventies, early eighties, I was born in 1964. I sent Mm -hmm. you my picture earlier. Um, And, you didn't see a crooked smile. I, if I go back and I look at certain photographs, I, I, I can see it. But and I was, I did receive some vaccinations. But if you look at kids from the, you know, that were born in the seventies, eighties, what percentage are you seeing that crooked smile? Is it seventy percent, eighty percent?
2: I, um, I don't know. I, I'll tell you two things that are kind of interesting on in that question. I'm trying to work with a facial recognition software developer to be able to test this scientifically because anything I do is uh, obviously confirmation bias theater. I'm looking for it and I'm going to see it.
0: Right. Good point.
2: What I want to do is work um, with some software development to be able to tag asymmetrical faces and, and quantify what's going on because otherwise anything I see is, is just speculation. I did some tests uh, with uh, yearbooks I went through a bunch of yearbooks and just using my own uh, like I said confirmation bias theater um, I, I was counting them but I don't remember the percentage it, it, was, it was sort of futile exercise to me I'm a rational person I'm very curious I'm very rational and I want to do it scientifically if, if, it, if I were to come up with a number now it would be pure speculation fair now, enough One of the things I did notice that it's obvious, there are two things that will stand out over and over and over, and anyone will see this. It's predominantly males, and it's predominantly left side facial palsy. Every photo you see will nearly be right side up, left side down. If you see someone with a smirk, it will almost always be their right side is higher, meaning it's working properly and the left side is not working properly. And I think I know why this is, and I'm actually writing a scientific paper on this. Uh, I'm submitting it to a, a journal, which um, I'm sure will, uh, you know, they will retract it once it's published and, and people say uh, all kinds of nasty things about me. <laughs> a
0: la Andrew Wakefield.
2: Yes, exactly. So uh, I'm trying to decide whether to publish it under a, a pseudonym. Uh, because I don't need the recognition. I don't care about the recognition. but um, uh, it, it's a incredible discovery that may describe uh, the nature of a lot of mysteries that that currently vex neurologists. you mentioned
0: um, you mentioned Bell's palsy. Mm-hmm. Um, what other what other uh, diseases? Uh, seem to go hand in hand with this crooked
2: smile or misalignment Mm -hmm. of the eyes? Well, interestingly, the most common one is polio. Most Mm. people don't know that. But um, early on, uh, when polio first started really uh, becoming more apparent, which is in the late 1800s, one of the things people would notice is this thing called squint. And squint is actually strabismus. It's the same thing. India, there's other countries that still call it squint. But back then, they called it squint. And they didn't know why. And then you can go through uh, medical history even earlier, and you'll find other illnesses which um, seemed to have some association with facial palsy, meaning a crooked smile or misaligned eyes. But um, bulbar polio which is one of the most deadly forms of polio, it's bulbar is basically another name for your brainstem. That one, obviously, if you have inflammation and, and damage in your brainstem, you're going to have problems, right? I mean, it's, it, it's horrible. And um, that was probably the most common symptom of bulbar polio was facial paralysis because it would kill you so quickly. That's the only t- thing they had time to see. Um, in, and just for your listeners, bulbar polio is the type of polio most frequently associated with tonsillectomies, um, which were the most common surgery done at that time. And this isn't Temple Hat theory stuff. This is uh, uh, Jonas Salk, one of the you know va- polio vaccine inventors, studied this phenomenon because he was trying to understand why are tonsillectomies so frequently associated with uh, this particular type of polio, and by consequence, by these types of crooked faces. But, um, and what is the connection? Yeah. What is the connection? Well, I'll t- uh, if, if, if you're curious, the, uh, the surgery itself exposes nerve endings. And any enterovirus, uh, uh, without going too deep in polio, because I've written an entire book on this, about the true story of polio. It's called The Moth and the Iron Lung, if you're interested. Any enterovirus, well, let me say this, nearly any enterovirus is capable of of paralyzing people if it gets in their nervous system. Now, the human body has got a really good defense system in the gut where 70% of our immune uh, system resides, and it can keep these enteroviruses at bay. But if they are given a shortcut into the nervous system, they will paralyze. So if you have um, an enterovirus, uh, like poliovirus or Coxsackie virus or echovirus or d 68 there's all sorts of them. Any of those can paralyze you if they get into your nervous system. Now, if you happen to get one of those infections and just had your tonsils removed, you're going to have a portal into the nervous system that connects almost directly to your brainstem, which sits about an inch behind that area that was just operated on.
0: Ah. It's fascinating oh, because, I mean, they used to yank tonsils, the slightest hint of a fever. Oh, uh, oh
2: it was worse than that. It was right. if you weren't growing fast enough, or if you weren't any good at basketball. I mean, it's crazy <laughs> how quickly they would yank your tonsils.
0: And now they understand that there may be uh,
2: connect. They may be connected to the immune system, or they are. Correct. Imagine that there's mm. a reason for them that we didn't understand. Right. Right. Yeah. So to answer your question uh, about what diseases are associated. Um, Bell's palsy is, you know, sometimes associated with certain viral infections, um, polio, and unfortunately, um, vaccination is probably the most common, um, thing these days where parents have taken before and after pictures of their children and noticed a change, um, directly after their vaccination. So th- that is basically why i became interested in it
0: right so this is where the rubber meets the road as they say because we need to talk about what changed in medicine uh that would precipitate this the symptom of the the crooked smiles the misaligned eyes that heretofore you know we always saw in photographs was this amazing symmetry that all Mm -hmm. changed so what happened with medicine, and you mentioned earlier metal.
2: Yeah, um, and this gets a little bit uh, more into my autism book, but in 1932, um, a change was made to the single pediatric vaccine that was being used during that time. Um, People think of smallpox as being the one pediatric vaccine, but it wasn't really a popular vaccine. And people didn't use that vaccine as a matter of habit. They would use it if there was an outbreak near them. It wasn't something that every kid got, you know, the day they were born or when they hit six months old or when they hit 12 months old, it was something they did. Like if they felt like they had to, the diphtheria vaccine was different. It was something, it was really the first pediatric vaccine that was employed methodically, you know, when you hit six months old, when you hit a year old, when you're born. And in 1932, a significant change was made to this vaccine. And that is, they added a a product, um, which we now call aluminum hydroxide. It was actually a slightly different version back then at that first year, but it's a metallic substance that was added to the vaccine because they had discovered that it made it work better. It aggravated the immune system into a more significant response. So in 1932, they added this, what is now called an adjuvant. And within a year, um, the first child ever to be diagnosed with autism was born. And in fact, if you go look at childhood and adult pictures of him, you will see the stereotypical crooked smile that we're talking about right now. All right. So we need to talk about metal in the body and white blood cells. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's a horrible thing. Um, basically, you know, in the late 1700s, they started using uh, metal substances as medicine uh, because they actually work. I mean, they do something. Now, they're extremely harmful, extremely toxic. Um, but if the goal, let's say, is for you to violently purge your bowels, uh, mercury is really good at that. You know, if you um, give a baby enough mercury powder, they will have um, a very bad diaper situation. And back then, um, they thought that the bowels were the seed of most disease. And so if you can purge the bowels with medicine, then you can get rid of the disease. So um, mercury and another one was arsenic. And you know arsenic was really good at activating the immune system, um, or I should say suppressing the immune system, excuse me. And um, so arsenic became another um, go-to tool for medicine. And throughout the 1800s, you start to see some new diseases appear that had never existed before. And in the 1900s, you start to see new things like food allergy appear that had never existed. You start to see things like autoimmune diseases that had never existed. And when I say never existed, I don't mean you can't, thumb through medical literature and never find a single instance of something resembling it. I mean, in epidemic form where hundreds and thousands of people are getting it. Like Crohn's disease. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, uh, 1932, the year I just mentioned, uh, is the year Crohn's disease was first described. Um, uh, so the the year aluminum was added to the single childhood uh, vaccine Uh, Is the same year, um, Bernard Crone first described, I think it was those 14 patients that had inflammation at the terminal ileum and that's something he'd never seen before. Now at that time, aluminum, uh, was a, a really popular substance in cookware and it was likely, um, poisoning people, um, during the late twenties and early thirties, there was a big stink about it and they finally cleaned it up. But, um, Interesting that you mentioned Crohn's because that's um, really factors into this whole thing, just time-wise. Right. So the introduction
0: of you know metals, heavy metals, into our bodies, whether it's through uh, vaccines, beginning in 1932, but let's face it, it's in the soil, it's in the water, it's in the air. Yeah. Uh, so we've got all of this, these mineral or these metal deposits in our body. But that's only part of the equation, and then in comes the white blood cells. Explain what white blood cells do, and why, in combination with the metals, it becomes deadly.
2: Yeah, it, it's a horrible, it's a horrible thing. And like this is one of the things I was uh, mentioning that, that where this is leading. I hope it's not true, but unfortunately, this part is true. We know this. Um, ingested metal, your body can deal with pretty well if you. Eat it if it's in your food. If you eat uh, seafood all the time, in general, your body can handle it. Your uh, uh, intestines are good at filtering out. Your kidneys are good at filtering out. Um, It can harm you, but in general, your body can handle it. When it becomes injected, it bypasses the immune system of your gut. and What happens is um, the first reaction your body has to injected metal is it surrounds it with fibrous tissue that are called granulomas or um, nodules and um, your body's trying to wall off this invader because aluminum is an invader and it doesn't know what to do with it the other real problem is your body sends white blood cells to attack it And, and anyone who's studied immunology 101 knows that white blood cells are sort of the guardians of your body anytime they sense a microbe Um, They go, attack it, and they try and eat it and destroy it. The problem with aluminum is um, the white blood cells attack it, but they can't destroy it. And this is scientifically, you know, studied and proven. This is not um, anything that you, you can't go out and read in scientific journals. So what they've recently discovered is aluminum that gets picked up by your white blood cells, that's how it actually moves around your body. It, it doesn't just randomly float around, you know, in the blood or the lymph. It's actually sort of hitchhiking along, um, inside white blood cells. And you might think that's a good thing. Like they're doing nothing, right? They're harmless. They're sitting inside white blood cells. I mean, what, what, what harm could come of that? Well, what it appears um, to be happening um, white blood cells in the immune system don't randomly float around your body either. There's a very complex signaling mechanism that asks white blood cells to go to where they need help. And um, so if you get a cut on your shin, let's say you you know you, you, you jab your shin on your, your car uh, door as you're getting out, white blood cells will be signaled to go help there. Now, it makes sense, right? Because you don't have to have a body full of a gazillion white blood cells, you only need a million, because your body can signal for help where it's needed. So you get a cut on your shin, your body signals for help, and white blood cells rush to the aid to make sure nothing bad happens. Right, and to repair the damage. Exactly. Now, that seems kind of like, well, if there's aluminum floating in the white blood cells, I don't really want them going to my injured shin, that doesn't sound like a good idea. And that, that's probably not good, but that's not really the problem. Yeah,
0: you're not probably going to notice it. But what happens if you get a head trauma?
2: Well, this is the thing. It doesn't actually matter. They, your brainstem, this component of the brain that we've been talking about that's responsible for the crooked faces, it sends out a signaling mechanism for help if you get injured Anywhere in your body. It doesn't matter if you've gotten injured in your brain. If you've gotten injured in your leg, your body, your brain sends out signaling mechanisms for help from your white blood cells. And they did a study with this in rats. They blocked the bile duct. And they studied this, uh, I think it was called MCP-1. It's this you know special signaling protein. And what happened was their brain started emitting this protein when they injured their liver. And of course we don't know the reason for this, but it sounds pretty smart, right? From a design standpoint, like your body is proactively asking for help at the brain, the most neurologically sensitive component of your body. It's asking for help there in case something worse happens. Now, interestingly, there's another signaling mechanism, which is microbial invasion. So that same signaling happens if your body senses a bacterial, a bacteria or viral infection. So think about this. What is the event where you get cut and you get a microbial invasion? Unfortunately, vaccination triggers those two very things. Those two things, uh, tissue injury and pathogen invasion, are triggered by vaccination. And when that happens, you're likely, if you receive a vaccine with aluminum in it, which a lot of them have, you're going to have white blood cells ferrying that aluminum around your body. And those white blood cells are going to get signaled to your brain.
0: Do the white blood cells that have metal uh, whether it's aluminum or mercury. Sort Some of, other toxin. Right, whatever. riding on uh, p- piggybacking. Will they cross the blood-brain barrier?
2: Yeah, there's no. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but in, in infants, the blood-brain barrier is incompletely formed. Um, so they're at, sort of at a disadvantage already. But because they're in white blood cells, they can pass through unmolested. They're not stopped from anything. So it's sort of a Trojan horse where white blood cells are being signaled to the very part of the brain you don't want them going and they're able to freely pass through the blood-brain barrier because the body doesn't recognize them as invaders. They're riding inside the white blood cells.
0: White cells, hey, they're with me.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's a horrible equation and, and there's one more component that's even worse that's by far the most disturbing component of any of my hypotheses
0: tax day is coming oh no Have you noticed once winter ends and the weather starts to warm up, that's when you catch a cold? So many of my friends have colds right now, but I can't remember the last time I had one or the last time I was sick. Even when I do catch a cold, it just doesn't hang around very long. Now. I can't say that Life Change Tea can cure the common cold, but I can say that since I started drinking Life Change Tea, and right now I'm drinking the Formula 13 Peppermint Tea, I've never felt better, more energized, never bloated or constipated. And you know what they say, good health starts with a healthy gut. In fact, just before I came down to my little studio beneath the stairs, I brewed up another week's supply of Formula 13. Yes, it's organic, and it's non-GMO and caffeine-free, but it also tastes great. One cold, refreshing glass of this amazing herbal tea every morning, and off I go to start my day feeling really good. It's like being cleansed from the inside out. And that's what it is. It's a gentle cleanse every day. Take a moment and visit GetTheTea.com. GetTheTea.com. And find out about their line of amazing herbal teas. Now, after I finish my Formula 13 Peppermint, I think I'm gonna try the Formula 13 Pomegranate. And I'll always go back to the Life Change Tea Super Strength. These teas are key to maintaining healthy digestion. Life Change Tea. Use the code UNLIMITED and your first purchase will ship for free. Life Change Tea and Formula Thirteen Tea from GetTheTea.com.
1: The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again. What that means? Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
0: Forrest Moretti, the author of Crooked Man Made Disease Explained, is here. Now, before the break, you mentioned tissue damage and pathogen invasion uh, being two parts of the signaling mechanism for white blood cells to come into the brain stem. And you said there is one more thing you discovered as part of this signaling mechanism, which you found to be truly horrifying.
2: Well, the third thing is crazy, and it's fear. It's stress response to fear. And what happens is when the body becomes scared, the brainstem, there's a part of the brainstem called the dorsal vagal complex. And it's this grouping of different little parts of functionality within the brainstem. They start aggressively signaling from help for help from white blood cells. This is a, a component of something called the polyvagal theory. It's a guy named Dr. Stephen Porges. And if you read up on it, you, you'll learn that polyvagal theory is a way to attempt to explain the body's response to stress. And everyone's heard of fight or flight, right? Yes, That's yes. the first response to stress. Your body starts diverting resources from your immune system um, into muscle. Into It raises your heart rate. It does all these things to prepare you for the ability to flee or to fight. And um, there's actually a secondary stress response that happens beyond that. And it's a very primordial stress response that Dr. Porges refers to as death feigning, And you would know it from seeing a possum play dead, as we call it. Yes. When they're scared. And – What most people don't know is they're not actually playing dead in the sense that they're pretending to be dead. They're not holding their breath and closing their eyes and hoping danger passes. They are actually involuntarily catatonic. A chemical reaction has been issued from their brainstem that has caused them to go completely limp into a coma-like state. They don't wake up when they feel like the coast is clear. They wake up when the chemistry has been resolved back to stasis. So in humans, we actually have a similar stress response mechanism to death feigning. And it happens, as Dr. Porges describes it, when fighting or fleeing no longer appear to be an option. And he describes this as when you are being immobilized or restrained and there appears to be no hope of escape. Now, any of your listeners who have been following along will know immediately the, the image that should come to mind, which is a child being restrained on a nursing table and being vaccinated. Mm. Unfortunately, these three things, tissue injury, pathogen invasion, and the stress response to being immobilized or restrained, basically being terrified, these are the very three things that aggressively signal for help from white blood cells. Unfortunately, white blood cells that are likely to contain some toxins in them.
0: And when those white blood cells carrying those toxins along uh, enter the brain, what happens?
2: Well, as I mentioned, the epicenter of this signaling mechanism lies just millimeters away from the cranial nerve nuclei that innervate these facial muscles and this is why i believe it's so common because the amount of toxin uh, I, I frequently mention aluminum but let's just say the amount of toxins in vaccine ingredients is minute it's very tiny and for the longest time people have used this as an argument to explain why that amount of aluminum couldn't possibly cause the catastrophic damage of autism or other neurological disorders that are often reported after vaccination. What we're now starting to understand is this isn't diluted. You know, this isn't pouring a powder a, a packet of, of great Kool-Aid powder into a pitcher of water and it dispersingly evenly throughout the body. This is a targeted delivery system that Will pick up any of the toxin in that vaccine and deliver it to the very part of the body you l- would last want it going to. So, the white blo- uh, white blood cells are likely to pick up the aluminum. They're likely to go to the brainstem, and then and the natural life cycle of white blood cells we suppose is what releases this aluminum. And aluminum is a neurotoxin. Um, From what we understand, it damages the myelin sheath, which is that fatty layer around the axons that run up and down your brainstem. And when they damage it, they don't work as good. They short circuit. Now, unfortunately, this damage is so difficult to detect. We really don't have any neurological imaging tools to see it. You know, an MRI will not spot it. A CT scan will not spot it. I mean, there's even things like uh, diffuse tensor imaging and some other like really cutting edge neurological imaging technology. And it still is not detailed enough to see deep within the brainstem, but you can see it on their faces. You can see the result of it. so And but, I've only talked about crooked smiles and eyes because there's many other signs of cranial nerve damage I'd like to talk about sometime. But right. go ahead with
0: your question. But, but the, the crooked smile and the misaligned eyes, that's not the disease, that's the symptom of a whole host of either autoimmune or neurological diseases, right?
2: Yeah, unfortunately, it, today, it's probably most commonly associated with Raw neurological damage. Sure, it may come on after a certain illness. Um, but even so, remember what I just mentioned about one of the triggers, uh, one of the immune signaling triggers um, to the brainstem is microbial invasion. It's yes. pathogen invasion. So if you get sick and you happen to have some of these toxins floating around your body and white blood cells, that's where they're going to go.
0: So even if you, let's say, for example, you were immunized or vaccinated, but you somehow you escaped uh, some sort of neurological damage or autoimmune disease. But then later in life, let's say you're a quarterback with the Green Bay Packers, and one season you suffer three or four concussions, will those... With the with the metals from your vaccinations as an infant at that point, then come back to haunt you.
2: Uh, I'm not sure if you've read much of what I've talked about, and I don't know if you're doing this on purpose. But this is my this is my theory about CTE. Is that did Chronic. you know that, or are you just that smart? <laughs> uh, well, no, but I was just trying to follow along here. Okay. Well, uh, you're you're a smart, dude. Then. Because this was one of the epiphanies I've had. I I don't know if you know what CT is, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Right. It's the concussion disease. They're trying to understand why are these athletes succumbing to suicide and other neurological problems. And this isn't 64-year-old Iron Grid linebackers who played for the Steelers for 12 years. These are kids. These are 12-year-old soccer-playing girls. So it's a 16-year-old lacrosse-playing guy killing themselves, and they're blaming it on a concussion. Now, this did not used to happen. This is something new. So you are, you are locking in onto a very big – what I feel like is a very big deal, which is inflammation used to be a productive tool of healing from the body. Yeah, it sucked. It hurt. If nobody wants inflammation. But it's the tool your body uses to heal itself. With a body that contains aluminum in it that's likely riding around in your white blood cells, suddenly inflammation becomes deadly. It's a ticking time bomb. Exactly. And it gets worse for girls. I'll explain that in a minute. But unfortunately, my theory, which is what you're suggesting, you didn't even realize it, is CTE, this chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is tied to concussions, I'm guessing what we're seeing is basically concussion-induced Alzheimer's. You know, Alzheimer's, we're starting to realize, seems to be associated with aluminum. And for most of these elderly, it's a lifetime of accumulation. Like you said, it's in the environment. It's in everything we eat. Now typically our kidneys can filter it out, but by the time you hit 50, 60, 70, you've had so much of it, it will start to take effect. But with these athletes at 12 years old and 14 years old, when they have um, a concussion or a, what they call um, you know, subclinical or mild traumatic brain injury, that's like, doesn't even register. When you have these tiny micro concussions, you are creating inflammation in the brain, and I'm afraid that that's what's happening to these kids. But there's so it's, many other
0: traumas that, that, you know, you could be in a, a, a bicycle accident. I mean, giving
2: birth for crying out loud is is a trauma. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so the inflammation is likely – uh, to draw aluminum to itself or metals, let's just say toxins. Mm. I, I focus on aluminum, but there's all kinds, obviously. I, so if I could go back real quick yeah. and, and mention um, two things about why females are different. Um, females uh different in this context. If if you've studied autism, you'll know that th- it has a high prevalence of males, four yes. to one. Yes. No one knows why. People have – um, have guessed that maybe there's some protective effect of estrogen in the brain. Uh, maybe testosterone does something to the blood-brain barrier, makes it leaky. There's all kinds of theories out there. Um, the reality is these, when these children uh, get autism, which is 12 to 18 months, is you know that's sort of the peak window. Uh, tes- uh, testosterone and estrogen levels between female and male babies are nearly identical. They're almost producing no hormones, in, in uh, none of those hormones. So to suggest that those hormones are playing a part in it is is unbelievable to me because they're just not making any of those hormones. One thing that is different is the stress response. The fear response in females is considered the single biggest gender difference other than childbirth. Hmm. So when females undergo stress response. They have fight or flight just like males, but when you advance to the immobilization and restraint phase, females start producing other hormones like oxytocin. Right, okay. Females, when they go under, uh, past the fight or flight response and go into immobilization or restraint, they start doing different things than male brain do. They start producing oxytocin, they go into this mode that people call tendon befriend, where they try to befriend the fear. They try and befriend their attacker. And you've heard stories of women who've been, you know, kidnapped and and somehow they're able to like manage to befriend their attacker and their attacker releases them. So it actually works sometimes, you know, it's actually a very effective survival mechanism sometimes. Right. right. Because, you know, they may be outmatched by sheer muscle mass, and they're not going to win a physical battle, so they go into this other um, state. So that is my uh, thinking on why uh, males develop more autism and neurological injury after vaccination, is because of the fear and stress response of being immobilized and restrained. Females don't exhibit that same stress response that males do.
0: And that stress response, that delivers the white blood cells carrying the toxins to the brain.
2: That's correct. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, you can look at some other neurological disorders like Parkinson's, and it originates in the brain stem, and it also has a high male prevalence. So you can look at muscular... uh, uh, MS or Alzheimer's, these have a gender equivalence. There's no prevalence of male or female. And these disorders occur all throughout the brain. So there's something particular about the brainstem itself that's creating a male, a higher male prevalence than female. Right. And I think it's the stress response.
0: I'm going to have you back and we're going to talk about the, the, new, the new book on autism, which, which launches May 1st. And, yep. and, and we'll get into this in more depth, but I have to ask you this. I mean, the, the climate now, the political climate is such that uh, anyone who dares question the safety and efficacy of vaccines now, there were calls by uh, uh, New York Congressman Adam Schiff, uh, you know, for Amazon to ban books that question the efficacy and safety of vaccines. Uh, now we have newspapers uh, that, will, that will out somebody. Uh, they'll make a news story out of the fact that at some point in their career, they were anti-vaccine. It's the, mm-hmm. they are really ratcheting up here. Yeah. Uh, and then we had this major study that came out of Denmark back in, uh, earlier in March. Again, saying no link between the MMR vaccine and autism. And yet, mm-hmm. you, and yet, you are—you stand resolute, and you are pushing back, very courageously, I might add. Uh, <laughs> what a lot of people are—you know—it's time to duck and cover. Yeah. Uh, what do you say about this 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 new study?
2: What are they yeah. missing? Well, this is kind of like asking um, an economist if socialism works. <laughs> They're going to tell you yes, and epidemiologists are basically economists in lab coats. They will tell you vaccines don't cause autism um, no matter what. Now, the reality is most of these studies have flaws in them. Every study has a flaw. If you have someone that wants to disprove a study, they can find a flaw in the study. These studies are no different. These studies focus on either one vaccine, which is the MMR vaccine – and they focus on usually one ingredient, thimerosal, which is the basically mercury, uh, which has been removed from a lot of the vaccines. Now, every one of these studies has done a lot of monkey work to try and get the result they want. They'll filter out certain people group. They'll basically put their thumb on the scale to get it to say what they want. But th- the reality is, um, think about it. This is... Incredibly high stakes, right? It's huge. If vaccines are capable of causing autism, we have a serious problem on our hands. You know, you and I, we we may disagree on the nature of that problem, but regardless, if it's in fact true that vaccines are capable of causing autism, we have a very big problem. Probably the biggest moral, ethical, political dilemma we've ever faced as a species, Name a bigger one. Oh, I agree. Name a more widespread human intervention than vaccination. You can't. It's something performed on every child.
0: Yeah. I mean, if the trend continues, if you follow that curve, let's let's just look at it from an economic standpoint. We're getting predictions from provincial governments here in Canada that in the next 20, 30 years, dealing with autism alone, the, I mean, I hate to be so sort of cold and clinical about it, but it will bankrupt provincial governments.
2: Yes. Yeah. I mean- Look, we're, we're nearly 75 years in. We've got billions of dollars in the hole. The problem's getting worse. And there are people whose response is it's not actually a disease at all, but a gift. Hmm. Yeah, people on the autism spectrum are beautiful, remarkable souls with attributes many of us would love to have. But to minimize their struggle, to minimize the parent's struggle and call it a gift is 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 cognitive dissonance at the most extreme level it, it can't it, it just should indicate to you the incongruity of what we're going to have to face one day and for us the thing is you're you
0: know you're not saying, I'm 100% right, but you're saying, I think I'm on to something, which is actually all Andrew, Dr. Andrew Wakefield was saying in that article. If people actually read uh, his study, he wasn't saying this is, you know, the MMR, MMR vaccine is definitely causing autism. He was saying, I think there might be a link here. We need to look at this. And maybe what we ought to do is unbundle the MMR vaccine so that he wasn't an anti-vaxxer. You can have the measles vaccination, but it's that bundling that he was concerned about.
2: Yeah, it, yeah, that that's a really interesting story, of course, and people, most people don't know this who've never studied it. Um, the paper um, was looking at the, the association between a type of Crohn's disease and children with developmental disorders. That Le- was the yeah. That was the point of the paper. Leaky gut syndrome. And in fact, the paper specifically says, we did not prove an association between measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine and the syndrome described. So the paper went out of its way to say it didn't find an association. More research is needed. So you can imagine how contentious this subject is for a paper to be retracted, for a doctor to be vilified. For a paper that suggested a association of gut issues and autism, and specifically said there uh, we couldn't find an associ we couldn't prove an association between the vaccine and autism, and in fact, the point of the paper, the association of gut issues and autism or neurological disorders, has been proven and repeated. I think I. I compiled 17 studies since then for my new book um, that have made the same realization that his paper was retracted for. So if anything, that should tell you he was a scapegoat. There were some other things going on with the vaccine program that had nothing to do with him, and they needed to make an example. And they certainly did. Well, we will, uh,
0: the next time we we speak, we'll get uh, into that in more detail. Uh, sure thing. Crooked, man made disease explained. How can folks get a copy of that?
2: Currently, it's available on Amazon. Um, it's digital print and audiobook. Now, I have a feeling this situation is unfortunately going to get worse. Um, so they can go to areucrooked.com. And I'm sure I'll have it linked, uh, to a place they can get the book through that. If Amazon uh, were to fall, let's say. Well,
0: it's it's interesting because right now, as we speak, there is this sort of petition battle going on. Those that want your books taken from taken off Amazon, and those that want that in that are defending you and want them kept on Amazon. What's the uh, the latest tally? Do you know?
2: I think the last time I checked, the uh, petition to ban it was over 11,000 signatures and the petition not to ban it was over 16,000. So there's almost a 5,000 signature gap. Um, not that that really means anything. And I'm guessing whoever started the initial petition is probably regretting it because all it did was create a lot of publicity for the book. Um, but uh, it, is, it is interesting, uh, the censorship, you know, Christopher Axley, who, who is a peerless researcher who's done nothing but try and uh, solve some of the world's most vexing neurological problems. It's considered a preeminent aluminum toxologist, uh, tox, tox, he's considered an aluminum expert, and he, he's basically been vilified and his, his funding denied. He even started, or someone started, a GoFundMe to give people a chance to privately fund his research, and GoFundMe shut that down. Oh, my. Um, so it's getting worse. And, and my opinion is it actually needs to get worse. Uh, most people are poorly informed on this issue, they, they're, you know, humans are emotional creatures. We don't want to think we're wrong. We don't want to be proven we're wrong. We want to think we're right. And we all grew up being told that vaccines uh, didn't harm anyone and they were worth the risk. And for anyone to, uh, you know, presume or to suggest otherwise is going to be vilified, uh, particularly a scientist or a physician um, who has the credentials to back up what they say. And
0: uh, the autism vaccine, that again is available May 1st. Uh, can people take pre, uh, is Amazon taking pre-orders?
2: No, no, I, I opened it up for pre-orders for a week and then uh, I'm, I'm not doing pre-orders. It will just drop on May 1st, assuming Amazon Amazon doesn't ban it. Um, if they do ban it, uh, you'll be able to get it through the autismvaccine.com and um, I'll have some interesting pictures to go along with the story because that book has a very interesting story behind it. And people have been sending me messages asking for pictures of what I was talking about. Um, So I'm gonna create a little gallery or museum of sorts so that people can uh, take the book to the next level.
0: Forrest, we will talk again uh, at length, I hope. Thank you so much for this.
2: Thanks, great to be with you. you.
0: Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a flash to give you a few details about Wednesday's episode of Conspiracy Unlimited. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, or my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, I hope you'll consider becoming an official donor. A donation of $50 a month places you in the Star Chamber. $20 a month is the whistleblower tier and a donation of just $10 per month makes you a truth seeker. Star Chamber and whistleblower members can participate in an exclusive monthly online chat or video conference with me and all donors are entered into a monthly draw for Strange Planet merchandise. Any monthly amount is welcome and greatly appreciated. To become an official donor Go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet, patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Next time on Conspiracy Unlimited, the hidden power of names and what they reveal about who and what we are.
1: Let the soul of the incoming one impress upon you what they want to be called. Because in the birth name is your contract with God and why you're here and what you came to learn.
0: Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now.
1: A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now.